BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Finding my way out. Huh. Really strange. It always was strange. I never thought I'd be telling you the story I'm about to tell you. But here goes. In the spring of 2016, which is when this story begins, I was the New York Times bureau chief in Delhi, and I was spending a lot of my time trying to solve problems that were not strictly journalistic. For one thing, our power blinked on and off at two-minute intervals for much of the day. This seemed to be related to the troop of monkeys, rhesus macaques, that lived on the roof of the building and had been chewing through the rubber insulation on the wiring. During the monsoon, water had seeped into the walls of the office, which had begun to ripple and smelled like damp cardboard. We solved these problems the way we solved all our problems, with makeshift solutions. There's a word for this in Hindi, to God. It served to preserve some kind of complex equilibrium that kept everything running. This approach could seem like negligence or, on occasion, like kindness. Our retired office manager, who was in his 80s, had been disappointed at the news that he had to retire, so we let him come in and spend every day at his old desk, a few feet away from the woman who had replaced him. Our landlord insisted on being paid six months' rent in advance, in cash, so we would have to take the money over to her in rolling suitcases, as if we were hitmen. When I did get a chance to focus on journalism, the bigness of it all could be paralyzing. My beat contained 1.6 billion people, one-eighth of the world's population. We were writing about budget reports. There were landslides, mudslides, floods, droughts, stampedes, avalanches. Outbreaks of chikungunya and encephalitis. But there was another kind of story that rarely made it into the newspapers. These were the dramas that captivated people in their everyday lives. Doomed lovers, epic battles, stunning reversals of fortune, magical transformation, legends. These stories were at the heart of the city where I lived, 
but they were not part of my standard workload. Every morning, when I dropped my kids off at school, I drove past a narrow road that led into a forest. It was said that deep in that forest, in a palace cut off from the world, lived a prince and a princess, the last surviving members of a Muslim royal family. Few people had actually seen them, but everyone knew the story. It was like a story being born in front of your eyes and a story that could easily be fiction. I don't think I will ever hear of such a story in my lifetime again. They were kind of semi-mythical figures themselves. They turned into almost figures from an Indian epic. And once we were just going for a walk in the forest, and he said, oh, have you heard about this prince who lived in these ruins of the forest? It was all so, so bizarre. It was more Their story was passed between tea sellers and rickshaw drivers and shopkeepers in Old Delhi. But how could there be a king in the jungle? There were different versions of this story depending on who you spoke to. Some people said that the family, the royal family of Avad, had been there since the British had usurped their kingdom in 1856, and that the forest had somehow grown up around the palace, engulfing it. In the bushes, I just couldn't see much, but I just saw him, he was running. Some said they were a family of jinns the shape-shifting spirits that were seen at Delhi's holy sites. It was a story that had lodged in my mind. And then one day, in the spring of 2016, I got this message from our office manager. Ellen, have you been trying to get in touch with the royal family of Avad? I hadn't. There was a call from Princess Sakina Mehal, or her secretary, I guess. The secretary left precise instructions on when you should call her, between 11 and 12 noon. She ended this message by saying, if you're interested. I was. I'm Ellen Berry, and this is the story of The Jungle Prince. Chapter 1. The Railway Station. The story goes... In the early 1970s, a mysterious woman appeared on the platform of the New Delhi railway station, announcing herself as Velayat, the Begum of Avad, the great-great-granddaughter of the warrior queen Hazrat Mahal from the fallen kingdom of Avad. Avad was a Shiite Muslim dynasty that once ruled an area the size of Scotland until the British annexed the kingdom and exiled its rulers. And at that point, that's when the queen, Hazrat Mahal, led an uprising against the British. It's sometimes called the First War of Indian Independence. But her army was vanquished. She died in obscurity. 
So the woman in the train station said she was Hazrat Mahal's great-great-granddaughter. And she and her two children had come back for their property. It included mosques, shrines, and palaces. Famous buildings now maintained by the Indian government. It's almost as if she had come into Washington and asked for the Lincoln Memorial, the Capitol, the White House, and the Washington Monument. She declared that she would stay there in the railway station until they had been restored to her. So she settled in the VIP waiting room and unloaded a whole household there. Carpets, potted palms, a silver tea set, and huge, glossy Great Danes. She and her children settled on red plastic chairs and waited. They waited for almost a decade. The Begum was an arresting-looking woman, nearly six feet tall and broad-shouldered, with a face as craggy and immobile as an Easter Island statue. She wore a sari of dark, heavy silk, and kept a pistol hidden in its folds. The children appeared to be in their mid-twenties. They were known as Prince Cyrus and Princess Sakina. I'm told that they were strangely submissive, reluctant even to accept a mouthful of food without their mother's permission. They addressed her as Your Highness. They were attended by Nepali servants in livery, wearing white turbans. So overawed by their mistress, the Begum, that they approached her on their knees. If you wanted to talk to the Begum, you couldn't just go up and talk to her. You had to submit a written petition on embossed stationery that would then be placed on a silver platter and carried to her. She would write back a response, which would be read aloud by one of her children. Crowds would sometimes gather around the Begum, sometimes weeping to see a queen in such lowly condition. Sometimes people walked away backwards so as not to insult her by turning their back. Once, during Muharram, the annual Shiite ritual of mourning, a visitor found her surrounded by pilgrims, flagellating themselves with chains to which razor blades had been attached, leaving the railway platform spattered with blood. A mention of the kingdom of Avad, even today, stirred feelings in most Indians, but especially in Shiite Muslims. And seeing them, homeless, on a railway platform, was even more powerful. Her story of treachery and dispossession had found an audience. But still the government wouldn't budge. And after several years of this, Vilayat hit upon a far more effective way to advocate her case. Journalists. In particular, foreign correspondents. The Washington Post, Sunday, August 9, 1981. Stubborn queen holds court in New Delhi Railroad Station. Heir to a long-banished throne. The Begum's dogs have Princess teeth. stationed at depot, waiting for the her palace kingdom. is all that they want. The Begum imposed stringent conditions on journalists. She could only be photographed when the moon was waning, one outlet reported. The journalists complied. 
delighted by the Gothic peculiarity of it all. For the 51-year-old matriarch of a royal line that once ruled 5 million subjects in an area the size of West Virginia, resides today just off platform number one at the New Delhi Railroad Station. Her aristocratic bearing and an entourage that includes seven servants and nine Doberman pinches lend a regal air to her her presence. Her surroundings definitely do not. Hoping to shame the Indian government into returning the family property in Lucknow. Her Royal Highness now lives in decayed grandeur in a fly-infested 15-foot square open-sided portico of the train station with her son and daughter, surrounded for security by 10 dogs and waited on by two Nepalese servants. This coverage worried the government. It was inconvenient and embarrassing. The last thing they wanted was more unrest. The dogs appear to be ferocious, and people are wary of. They seem to have free run of the area near the border. And a staff photographer visited the station. The station superintendent, laboratories, and building pictures being fed in gardens outside the platform. One person who worried a lot about the Begum's appearance was the chief minister of the state of Uttar Pradesh, where Avad had once been based. The Shiite population there could easily explode if they believed that their queen was being abused. So the officials there put together a plan to get the family out of the public eye. Amar Rizvi, an aide to the chief minister, was sent to Delhi to present the Begum with an envelope containing 10,000 rupees to be used for her return to Lucknow. The Begum's reaction was imperious and dramatic. She threw the bills up into the air so that they fluttered down to the platform. Rizvi asked his personal assistant to run around and pick them up. They returned with an offer of a four-bedroom house in Lucknow, which the Begum dismissed as too small. She wanted something grander, a palace, something that would separate her and her children from the commoners. The Begum has rejected as meaningless an offer in 1976 of a modern home in Lucknow, formerly known as Avad, in Uttar Pradesh, bordering Nepal. I never even looked at it, she said. It isn't good enough for my precious dogs. I would rather die in one small ruined palace or in this dirty, vulgar railway station than accept dishonour. This offer still stands. The case is at a standstill. The petitioning continues. As the years went by... The government got more anxious. And then, in 1984, nearly a decade after the Avad family began its campaign on the railway platform, Prime Minister Indira Gandhi accepted their claim. She granted them the use of an abandoned 14th-century hunting lodge with pavilions and a commanding view of Delhi. It was known as Malcha Mahal, a retreat built for an emperor, It had no electricity or running water, but it had grandeur and separation, the things that the Begum had demanded. The Begum found this offer acceptable, and so they packed up their trunks, rolled up their carpets, and with their ferocious dogs and their loyal servants, vacated the railway station for good. They moved their belongings into Malta Mahal and proceeded to cut themselves off from the city that surrounded them. They lined the perimeter of their property with loops of razor wire and menacing signs warning, intruders will be gunned down. And that's where they stayed for the next 40 years, 
in the middle of the city, in the middle of the forest, hidden from the world. It's the time of year when everyone is traveling or running around getting thoughtful gifts for the people you care about. Think about giving yourself the gift of an Audible membership. Now is the best time to do it with a special offer of 53% off your first three months. For a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for just $6.95 a month. Visit audible.com slash jungleprince or text jungleprince to 500-500. Uh, my name is Sachit. Uh, I am a rider, cyclist, and uh, one day while riding, we saw this road going up, and we never knew what is up this road. So just we noticed a strange, uh, sort of haunted and uh, quiet place. There were no windows, no doors. That there was a board over there that said that if you cross this line and if you come over inside, uh, I have the authority to shoot you. So we were scared initially, and uh, we went off. A lot of times what happened was that uh, a few guys, local guys, they were trying to sneak in. And uh, once I saw that the prince was running and those guys, they got scared and they jumped off the fence and they ran away. He was very, very thin, very thin, pale. Um, But that's the only uh, visual contact of the prince I ever had. They never interacted with anyone. Begum and her family had settled in the woods, in absolute seclusion. But they were still an object of fascination in Delhi. People would come to the lodge, braving the guard dogs, hoping to get a glance of what was inside. Scholars, artists, filmmakers. Your Highness, I'm a Dutch writer residing in New Delhi and was very People interested in retelling their story. I am an artist and would like to draw some sketches of Mahal. It came as a profound shock to me to learn that the royal house of Awad is devoid of light and water and honorable allowances. Most of their visitors were journalists. BBC News and Current Affairs, 18th of July, 1997. Your Highness, I thank you for kindly sending me the dynasty of the dead and the death. Your Royal Highness, please accept our salutations and forgive us for interrupting your Sunday morning. Most respected Majesties, Christopher Thomas of the Times told me the story of your family and I've been doing a little research of my own. It is one of the most amazing and moving histories I've heard about and I would like to tell your story on international television for those who have not read about it. Leaving letters full of flattery and compassion. I would be honored to meet you. I greatly admire your courage for taking such a principled stand to regain your palace and what is rightfully yours. Sometimes outright begging. I am truly sorry for this botheration, but we have tried every option on flights to meet your highness's specified time. The Begum would speak only to foreign correspondents. Commoners, by which she meant Indians, were not allowed in, and her children followed suit. Your highnesses, I am a Canadian broadcast journalist in India preparing a one-hour radio program for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC. I feel your own words in your own voice will set the record straight. We do not wish to pry into the private and personal grief which Your Highness clearly feels. But this, I repeat, 
is a story which must be told to the world, accurately, carefully, and in your own words. With respect and every good wish. Respectfully yours. Respectfully yours. Yours humbly. Yours respectfully. Very truly yours. Newsweek magazine. The Associated Press. The Washington Post. The CBC. Newsnight. The Associated Press for India. BBC Newsnight. And then, in 1997, the Begum's children, Prince Cyrus and Princess Sakina, told the Times of London that their mother in a final gesture of protest against the treachery of Britain and India, had committed suicide by drinking a poison made with crushed diamonds and pearls. They called it the drink of silence. She took her life. You ask me how you crush up a diamond, I think it's pretty difficult, but crushing diamonds, drinking them, which then destroys the esophagus and the stomach and just rips your insides to pieces and is a very empress-like way to take your own life, shall we say. Cyrus, he then took her body and Hmm. put it in his bed and lay with her for several days or weeks or months until she decomposed to the extent that they decided to bury her. Then the dogs dug her up and ate her. They then became absolutely paranoiacally obsessed with the fact that the spirit of the royal tradition of Awad was also inside the dogs. Because the dogs ate part of the mother. I think so, yeah. I really do believe so. In the early 2000s, a man named Nick Kulukundis, a friend of a friend, heard about the story over dinner one night and decided to look into it. So anyway, we did some background research and we come to understand quite a lot of this, which meant we wanted to get in and myself and Sachin persevered and persevered. I don't think anyone, you know, some journalists have been They didn't let anyone in. Nick and his brother-in-law, Sachin, weren't far from Malcha Mahal and they decided to take their chances and walk through the forest up to the lodge to see for themselves. Eventually, a figure came slowly, slowly down and we spent about an hour, I think, watching him come down he came to us, and it was Cyrus. And he said, go away. You're not welcome here. Nobody is welcome in here. But he had a dog, and it was a very big dog, and it was looking vicious. <laughs> but I like dogs. So I said, what a beautiful dog. He said, oh, you like dogs. And that was the bond. With that, Cyrus softened, and a kind of friendship began to form. Whenever they were in town, Nick and his brother-in-law would go back to visit Cyrus in the woods. But they were never allowed inside the lodge. And if he was there, we shouted loud enough, he'd come down. But we started talking, and he would talk about himself in a very peculiar language, which you're probably familiar, the royal we, the we, the us, the queen, the princess. We had no idea what any of this meant. Hmm. Um, We never saw the sister, not for many years. I mean, not for three or four years of going there. But I did once uh, have a, a camera, I was taking a picture, and I just had a very long telephoto lens, and mm. I got an image of this woman standing up on the sort of parapet of the lodge, but with hair literally to the floor. And she looked weird. I mean, I was transfixed. Oh, this is extraordinary. What is it? When you say weird, what do you mean? There's a feeling that she was, she was almost, almost, she looks like a human animal. And I thought wearing a black robe, but with this hair all the way to the ground and just matted into solid lumps, as I could see. So there was, uh, but then finally, one day, Cyrus invited them in. 
There were lots of carpets, cannons, gold, swords, uh, things on the wall, pictures. And what they found was a grand building, um, but one with no electricity, no running water, completely open to the elements. Aligned one next to each other, and then some other chairs arranged in a semicircle about, say, eight or nine feet in front of them. Right in the middle of the table, in the back of that sort of ante room, if you like, was a, a glass, a little glass with pearl in it on its side, like this, covered in mold and stuff here. <gasps> this was the glass as she had drunk the crushed diamond. It had fallen there like this. At this angle, the sort of moldy stuff here was the remnants of whatever the drink was into which she'd inserted the diamond, and it was as it had been. We sat down. There was just Cyrus. This is exactly as we have changed nothing since the day. They'd changed nothing since the day their mother took her own life, years before. The siblings had been frozen in time. There's a big dining table set with absolutely beautiful gold and silver and all this. And it was normal-looking dining table, except for one thing, that on each plate there was a mountain of mold about this high. This was the di- the dinner that had been on the night that she had first ingested this and died. They hadn't changed anything. And the mold was, was, like, oh, um, was about a metre high oh my God. Of, of pustulant, almost, oh my God. almost jewel-like mold, but mold nonetheless. And it was just laid for dinner. So after we'd seen that and been, okay, we're quite broad-minded, me and Satya. <laughs> we, we managed to deal with the, uh, it was weird, but we thought in for a penny, in for a pound, as it were. We were then led back and we sat down in the two chairs and Cyrus said, would you like a drink? We looked at each other. It was quite difficult not to laugh sometimes. We would love a beer. So Cyrus disappeared and, and returned with two beers. And it opened and it was treacle. Oh, Jesus. It had turned into a thick syrup. The beers had been in a pantry for 30 years. But we realized that, I mean, because he was watching us, you know, we had to drink this, whatever it was. They sat there in Cyrus's company for a little while, sipping their beer, until Cyrus turned to them and asked, would you like to meet the princess? And he said, her grand majesty is coming. And from a passageway emerged the princess. It was pretty much actually in line with what I'd seen through my telephoto lens. She was a person who had been living like an animal for 30 years. I, she, According to Cyrus later, she had neither washed nor had a bath nor washed her hair nor nothing for more than 30 years since they moved in. She'd never left the place. She'd stayed in that property. And she had reverted to a state of living which is a Stone Age person. I mean... Extraordinarily. You've seen matted hair on people at like Burning Man and stuff. Imagine that over 30 years. It's solid lumps of hair. It's, it's branches of hair that kind of hang down, weighing her head down. In her face? I mean, wrinkled like a dead person, um, thin like a skeleton, it was stretched over the bones. But her eyes, when she removed her glasses, were completely alive. She was completely safe. She was unbelievable. She was. Oof, to the point. And the first thing she said Nick was, came to feel that in her own way, Princess Sakina was carrying on her, her mother's mother. legacy. I, mean, I felt that she was aware that she had taken the decision to ruin herself in this way in order to try her ultimate best to get something of progress in what her mother had tried to do, but also knowing she was never going to get there. That's the only thing that kept her going, I think. I think without that, she would have died long ago. That was her mission, her entire objective. That was her focal point. That's why she got up. They wanted their country back. 
They wanted the nation of Awad back. The princess had passed the years trying to preserve the history of Awad. She'd spent her days inside the lodge, bent over a stone slab, writing the family story over and over and over. And she made a book and asked them to read some of its passages aloud, which pleased Her Royal Highness. And she smiled. I mean, there was no smile before. She smiled. And then the princess, with a kind of wave of her hand, indicated that Cyrus should take them on a tour of the lodge. They made their way to the roof. And we went down corridors. Many of these corridors are huge wasps' nests. Through wasps' nests and, and anyway, bee stings. I got stung by several times. By, I was in quite a lot of pain. And you once they got there, the roof. Cyrus told them that this was his kingdom. And then he put his arms around the shoulders of both men as they stared out at it. And I noticed he was wearing like four-carat diamond earrings. One in both ears. We stood on the roof. And we could see, it's evening now, looking down, we could see sort of Delhi below. Still in the middle of us, and he put his arm, either one around Sachin, one around me, and he said, I want you guys to have all this when we're gone. And uh, I said, well, you know, it's very sweet of you, but I didn't have, all, have a jungle with all that. But um, anyway, it was, a bit, it was an emotional moment. It was almost like he had done something in bringing us to the princess, the princess had made a, a very detailed and quite, you know, difficult Nick described this as one of the most extraordinary days of his life. So one day at the very end of May, that time of year in Delhi when it just becomes dazzlingly, blindingly hot, I walk through the door of my office. The news that morning was another border incident between India and Pakistan in Kashmir. And I was trying to figure out how we would cover it. When I got that message from our office manager. Ellen? Have you been trying to get in touch with the royal family of Awad? There was a call from Princess Sakina Mehal, or her secretary, I guess. The secretary left precise instructions on when you should call her, between 11 and 12 no. I was going into the forest, in the middle of the city, for an audience with a princess. It's the time of year when everyone is traveling or running around getting thoughtful gifts for the people you care about. Think about giving yourself the gift of an Audible membership. Now is the best time to do it with a special offer of 53% off your first three months. For a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for just $6.95 a month. Visit audible.com slash jungleprince or text jungleprince to 500-500. This podcast is supported by Carvana. Looking to buy your dream car? Shop the convenient way, 100% online with Carvana. 
Carvana offers hassle-free financing that's completely transparent. All you have to do is answer a few questions, and you could get pre-qualified in just two minutes. Then, see your real terms and actual monthly payments as you scroll through Carvana's huge inventory of cars. The numbers you see are personalized just for you. It's that easy to find the right car for the right price, as it should be. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to finance your dream car the convenient way.